Hey there, I'm Julie Slattery, and you're listening to Java with Julie. This podcast is a production of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. Hey, before I get started with today's conversation, have you subscribed to Java with Julie yet? When you subscribe in your listening app or on our podcast page, you will automatically receive every new episode as soon as it's available. So take a second to hit that subscribe button. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and we're glad to be part of bringing that to light here on Job with Julie. So my guest today is Rebecca Bender. Rebecca Bender is a human trafficking survivor who now helps groups like the FBI, Homeland Security, medical professionals, and prosecutors better understand the underground world of human trafficking. She shares her story in her new book, In Pursuit of Love, and we'll link to that on our podcast page. It's really an excellent read. I think you're going to be struck by how relatable Rebecca is. She really could be your next door neighbor. In our conversation today, you'll hear how Rebecca first was trafficked, and she's also going to share a bit about the mindset of a trafficking victim and why leaving isn't as simple as we often assume it would be. Let's jump into my conversation with Rebecca Bender. Rebecca, I get so many books in my mailbox every week. I probably get like 10 books a week. Wow. Yeah, just from publicists and things like that. And usually I just skim through books because that's all I have time to do. But I recently got your book In Pursuit of Love, and I'm reading every word. Oh. It is really, really fascinating. Thank you. Well done. So, and your story is fascinating. Your life is fascinating. You have walked a road that I think a lot of people kind of sort of know is out there. Um, but we don't know somebody who has been trafficked. We don't know somebody who has walked the road of what does it mean for Jesus to redeem such a dark place. And you mm-hmm. describe that really well in your book. So thank you for putting it into words. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we've had an incredible team of editors that have really <laughs> helped me unpack my memories and just done really great things. I had one editor that would email me some questions like, do you remember what the feeling was in the room? Were you hot? Were you cold? Mm -hmm. You know, things like that, that helped to unlodge some of the senses so that our readers could really feel like they were in the moment. Mm -hmm. Whereas I just wanted to tell it like facts, like Tuesday, this happened, Wednesday, this happened. And the editors were so good at helping really breathe just the feeling into Mm -hmm. it. Well, that shows up because I I was even thinking as I was reading some this morning, I'm like, how does she remember what it was like to be in that room and what color sweater that person wore and all of that? So you did a great job of capturing it. Yeah. And I kept praying for the Lord to help bring the things to memory that he wanted revealed. And it would be sometimes where I'd have to sit there and close my eyes and rethink about that one day and where we were and who walked in, you know, like it Mm -hmm. took time. And, and some things I don't know that I completely remember 100%. I put that in the prologue, right? Like, I don't actually remember if that was 02 or 04, or the first arrest or the third, but it did happen. I just don't know if I got it in order. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if marriage teaches us anything, it's that our memories are not always accurate, because my husband can can remember something, the same situation very differently than I remember it. Exactly. They say memories are like elephants, right? Someone will describe a trunk, someone will describe a leg, someone describes a tail, and they're all actually describing the same. 
everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, as I'm, I'm looking at you and um, just a beautiful woman, mother of four, wife, um, follower of Christ, minister, I would never guess that 15, 20 years ago, what you were in the middle walking through. And I think when we talk about these dark issues like sex trafficking or even sexual abuse, some of us tend, I think, even to protect ourselves to think, well, that happens to other people. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I feel really bad right now about what's happening in the world or even in our country, but I can't relate. But your story really helps us relate to these are not some otherly type people this is happening to. This is happening to people that we know and love and people who are very much like us. And mm-hmm. so I know we don't have time to totally unpack your story, and I really recommend that people get your book. Um, but can you walk us through just a little bit of uh, what your journey has been? You grew up just in a norm, pretty normal family in Oregon. When did things start to fall apart? Yeah, and thanks for saying that. That's so sweet that you give me all those compliments. I I really wanted people to know that even though you might not be able to relate with being trafficked, we all can relate with having a desire to love and be loved. Mm -hmm. And I think we all can relate to remembering times in our teens and early 20s that we might not all have made the best decisions. or We may have turned the other cheek when we saw something going on that made us uncomfortable. And so that's what I really tried to focus on that was that we all can actually, we're all much more alike than we are different. And we all have a story to tell and redemption is available for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of how extreme you got on that spectrum and mine went really far. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I grew up as a normal, what I would consider a normal kind of all-American um, middle-class family, blue-collar family. I, I was born and raised in a real small lumber town, actually called Cave Junction, Oregon. Mm-hmm. It had about 3,000 people. So my dad worked at the local lumber mill, my dad, my grandpa, my uncle's it was a town that really circled around the lumber mill. So uh, if you can imagine, you know, I just, I grew up, I would take a little bottle out to my baby sheet before school. Hmm. I'd ride my bike on the weekends down to the river and skip rocks with my friends that were just my neighbor kids. I'd take a salt shaker out to my garden and pick a tomato in the summer, like just kind of a normal small town farm kid. When I was nine and my grandma was a praying grandma, but my parents weren't believers. And I mean, they would hate if I said that. They believed Mm -hmm. in God and they believed in Jesus, but they weren't living for the Lord, right? And so Mm -hmm. on weekends, they'd go to parties and I can remember sitting just in friends' rooms playing Nintendo while all the parents were out drinking and and smoking weed in the living room. And and so that kind of became my norm. And my dad started drinking pretty heavy. There'd be moments I can actually remember when someone would knock at the door and he'd have me hide the alcohol. And as a little girl, maybe six or seven or eight, uh, what that did for me in hindsight, obviously you don't identify it at the time, but it solidified something in me that we hide secrets in this home Mm -hmm. and that's okay and that's normal and that's just what you do. And so when my parents divorced and my dad started drinking really heavy, he'd forget to pick me up for visits or he'd pick me up and we'd drive right to the bar and... I can remember walking to the payphone and calling 1-800-COLLECT once when he took too long in the bar. I was about nine or 10. And so even though those feel like really small vulnerabilities for some people have experienced a lot more abuse, 
there's those were still we all have trauma, right? Even yeah. kids from good home good homes have trauma, and mm-hmm. and so imagine yourself being nine years old having to walk from a bar because you haven't seen your parents in two hours to a payphone, like it's scary and you don't know what to do and you don't know if they're coming out and and so through that phase, I should say from about nine to thirteen, which are pretty formative years, I started feeling unimportant, unwanted and very alone. I was an only child. My mom's now working two jobs to make ends meet. So I'm walking myself to and from school. My dad's kind of unfortunately um, drinking a lot. And and thankfully he's sober now and he's doing great. We've completely restored our relationship. But it doesn't mean those things didn't happen when I was little, you know. Mm -hmm. But I moved on after 13. My mom got remarried. Things started to kind of settle down and become normal. And I was always a gregarious, kind of active, involved kid. I played sports as a varsity athlete. I was on honor roll. I was on prom court. I was harvest ball queen. <laughs> I was just kind of a party girl. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. And I'd, you know, I'd be the cheerleader at the basketball team. I was the first girl to crack open a beer at the bonfire. I just wanted to be a part of something. <laughs> and I think that God really created me, but I think I'm hopeful everyone can relate. I had the spirit of adventure that I know God put in me to be willing to be brave enough to go explore all that he has. But as a young girl with trauma and no one to mentor me, I didn't really know how to to harness that excitement and adventure. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. was like, sure, I'm in. Four-wheeling, I'm in. You know, yeah. going and getting weed, I'm in. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just wanted to be a part. Yeah. So... I ended up, I got accepted into university. I graduated a year early. I had enough credits my junior year. So I graduated at 17 and I got pregnant Mm -hmm. and I decided to keep my daughter. I didn't know she was a daughter at the time, but I decided to keep my baby. And I had the most beautiful little girl 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But what that did was it it didn't allow me to go off to college with the rest of my friends. And I stayed in my farm town and went to community college as kind of a teen mom, really, right? I, I ended up having her after I turned 18. Mm-hmm. So now you're an adult and you should be making really healthy decisions at 18 with all <laughs> exactly. of these other things happening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they always say, you know, trafficked teenagers grow up to be trafficked adults if no one finds them before 18. And I think that's such a good reminder because we imagine our hearts can go out for trafficked 14-year-olds or 10-year-olds we start to get a little bit more desensitized to 18 and 19 year old trafficked people. And legally, because, you know, there's not a lot that you can do other than arrest the victim for prostitution. And And I think even the assumption that they have other choices when you're 14 or 15, you can't support yourself and you don't know better. But if you're 22 or 25, you should be able to get out of that situation. So you're right. Our assumptions are different and our level of compassion is probably different. Yeah, for sure. So that ended up just putting me in a vulnerable spot as a young teen mom trying to put myself through college. And I moved up to the college town of Eugene, Oregon, where my friends had an extra room in their apartment. And Mm -hmm. it was at that time that I met the most amazing guy. He was funny and charming and he had so much ambition and adventure like me and it's different than the other you know small town guys I had known and so I was enamored by him I thought wow he's successful he's got a nice car and in a great townhouse and so clearly he has a job that's going really well for him and Mm -hmm. he travels a lot and 
he's older than me. So it felt like, you know, he was so much smarter and, Mm -hmm. and everything became about me and the baby. It was all about us and creating this real family dynamic that I think broken nine-year-old me always really longed for, but that I can remember even as a young mom thinking, I will never let my daughter go without, you know, shoes or food or what I'll never do this to my kid. I won't let her have the same childhood I had kind of thought patterns, but it really was all a lie. He was actually a trafficker. He already Mm -hmm. had another victim in Las Vegas that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And he was pretending to have all these similarities in me with me so that I would fall in love. I think that women, young women, especially who fall in love, um, you don't want to see, even if there are warning signs going off, you don't really see them. And we see that in so many relationships with people we know. You're like, oh, girl, why are you dating him? Yeah. Yikes. You didn't, you didn't see that look mm-hmm. he gave the waitress, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, this is the same thing I went through. I didn't see all the red flags that I would see today and that in hindsight I recognized. But 18-year-old me didn't want to see that. I just wanted a family and I wanted mm. a dad to my daughter and I wanted to have excitement again and to feel like I was getting out of my situation of feeling like a girl in poverty trying to put herself through college. Mm-hmm. And it was hard. It's hard at 18 years old trying to figure out how to do life on your own. Yeah, I'm sure. So this guy basically got you to fall in love with him. And just to fast forward a little bit, he took you to Las Vegas and uh, you quickly realized that he had other plans for you. And uh, you were kind of trapped in that situation. Yeah, we ended up in Las Vegas, and I can just remember when he drove me to this dead-end street, this, this deserted strip mall, and I can remember him telling me, I spent a lot of money to get you here, and that was money I was using for my business. And mm-hmm. I felt really bad. I felt embarrassed that I didn't recognize, I guess, how much money it cost to move halfway across the country. You know, mm-hmm. I, I felt like, oh, I didn't want to be the young stupid girl. So I thought, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that we had taken so much money. And so I said, yeah, whatever I need to do to get the money back. And that's when he started saying like, well, I need you to sign up at this escort service and mm-hmm. it's just dancing. And this is how it works in Vegas. And this is how they get, you know, dancers to those fancy suites with all the big parties. And, mm-hmm. and I still was like, eh, escort sounds like prostitution. I'm still yeah. not buying that totally. And that's when he slapped me across the face. Hmm. And part of me thought, you know, I had this emotions of being hit for the first time by someone you love. And I remember having the thought of like, well, this is how adults fight. Mm -hmm. Like there was some shock, of course, but then there was also this like, well, this is how my mom and this is how my mom and her boyfriend fought. Like Mm -hmm. this is my dad would throw things against the wall when he was drunk. Like this is just how adults fight. We're adults now. Right. And so it's weird how your brain has been desensitized to certain behaviors that might not seem as shocking based on kind of what you've lived through. Um, You're the psychologist, so you would probably be able to explain that way more than I could. I just remember some people would be so shocked by that. And I remember thinking, well, we're just adults now. Mm -hmm. Isn't that weird? Um, No, not really. I'm tracking (laughs) with you. I mean, it's you understand what's normal based on what your experience has been. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I could see how you'd think that. Yeah, so I also then, as soon as that happened, I remember thinking, I don't know where my baby is. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know my address by heart. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't write it down. I didn't give it to anybody. I didn't memorize it. You know, nowadays, I think we've become so used to Craigslist that there, you know, I think when Craigslist first started and people would go, wait a minute, you're going to go meet some random stranger in their home to buy, you know, to buy yeah. some aquarium. Like you start <laughs> becoming more and more aware of like, oh, we should give addresses to each other of where we're going or you bring a friend. But back then, Craigslist wasn't really invented yet. And so we didn't have that kind of awareness of like, maybe I should write this address down and give it to someone Mm -hmm. safe. We just, I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know where my daughter was. And I thought, I'm just going to get the money back from moving. I'm just going to hope it's dancing. And then I'll get back to my baby tonight and things will go back to normal tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it didn't help that when I went in the escort service, I had to sign paperwork that said I wouldn't solicit. And that they didn't hire those type of girls. And so I thought, oh, see, I can trust him. It is just going to be dancing. Mm -hmm. This is going to be okay. I'm just going to get the money back and we'll all be happy tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But tomorrow never came. Mm. And so that was just really uh, sort of a CYA of the escort service to say we're not doing these things when in actuality the assumption was that you would be engaging in prostitution. Oh, absolutely. They know exactly what you're doing and they encourage it and they get mad if you don't do it. It's just to keep them legally above board so that if they're caught in a bust, so undercover cops would call escort services to set up undercover stings. And when a girl would be arrested, they could potentially file um, or a charge against the escort service. But if the escort service can say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, we had her sign this form, we didn't know we'd hire such a girl, then it let them off the hook and they could continue to operate as a legal, like a dating site. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating how trafficking takes place even within what appears to be legal legal Mm -hmm. businesses. Yeah, and as we know today, there's a lot of push to make prostitution legal. What do you think about that? Uh, Is there any case to be made for this will actually keep people safer or not? I don't think so at all. I mean, I think you're, you know, right now we have seven states in the nation that are trying to legalize prostitution. Hawaii, California, all of Nevada, D.C., New York, Maine, Rhode Island. um, Those are the seven states that Mm -hmm. have put up. Actually, the Massachusetts congressperson has actually put a policy for federal law to fully decriminalize. And they're not calling it legalization. They're calling it full decriminalization. But I think what's important for people to know is that the sex trade as a whole has five categories, human trafficking, buying, selling, pimping, pandering, procuring as one, and then brothel owning. Mm -hmm. And full decriminalization would keep human trafficking illegal, but it would fully decriminalize the other four categories. Mm -hmm. So you could have a legal brothel as your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Your neighbor could have men in and out of the house all night long while your kids are playing, you know, sidewalk chalk and men on drugs, drug dealers coming up. I mean, prostitution isn't its own isolated crime. You're going to have to see an increase in robbery and domestic violence and assault and rape and drug use and gang affiliation and organized. Mm -hmm. Like it's very dangerous for the communities to think about having brothels anywhere you want, anytime you want with no regulation, fully decriminalized. I think it's scary. Mm -hmm. And part of what your story demonstrates is there's really fuzzy lines in between those categories. And so you were trafficked but you are also engaged more in some of those categories that would be legalized or decriminalized, as you were saying. And so 
I don't even know if that makes sense. You understand this world better than I do, but it seems like if we say, oh, this is okay, but that's not, that's just a shell game. Yeah, and I think, you know, I had a friend of mine, Brad Miles from Polaris Project said, why would we want to launch four social experiments on our country all at once? Like it just, it's not safe. I'm in favor of what would be considered the equality model, which is where we decriminalize the selling which really is decriminalizing the victim. Mm -hmm. So we're not arresting just the victim over and over and over and creating this criminal record for her that's going to be really difficult for her to reenter normalcy after she's able to escape or be rescued. But I'm in favor of keeping the other ones criminal because I don't think that it's smart to have pimps and brothel owners and buyers acting uh, with impunity. I just think Mm -hmm. it's really dangerous. Now, you were arrested several times. So when you say that, you say that from personal experience. Uh, Yes. Yeah. How many times were you arrested? You know, I thought it was seven, but I think it was six now that we've actually been able to go through the records. Four times I did time in actual jail, and then the other two I was released. I uh, remember begging a cop once that then the, the next day was my daughter's first day of school. It was her first day of kindergarten. And I can remember getting arrested at the Wynn Hotel, and I just started crying and begging the guy like, tomorrow's my baby's first day of school. Like, I can't miss this for her. Would you please let me go? I didn't solicit you because I was being arrested for entertaining in an establishment without a license because Mm. I refused to solicit. I could tell they were undercover cops. So then Mm. I felt like I was just going to keep my mouth shut and say, no, I don't do that. I'm sorry. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. So I went to leave and they arrested me anyway for entertaining in an establishment without a license. Hmm. And so I just begged, like, please let me go. And he said, I'll tell you what, I can't let anybody leave. But if you can call the service and get another girl here, I'll let you go. And I never told anyone because I felt so much like a snitch, which is, Mm -hmm. right, snitches get in trouble in the streets. And so I remember calling the escort service and saying, um, they want a blonde. Hmm. And they said, okay, she's on her way. And I sat there and the blonde showed up. And I knew that she was about to be arrested. And... I said, all right, girl, I'll see you later. I'm going next door with this guy. Like he had a second room next door. Yeah. And I wasn't. He walked me to my vehicle and he said, if I find you out on the strip tonight, I will take you to jail. And so I stayed in my car all night long. I couldn't go home because I'd be beaten by my trafficker if I came in too early. Um, so I just waited in my car like the whole night. And then I went home and I just told my trafficker it was a slow night and I didn't make any money. Hmm. Is there ever an opportunity or was there for you to ask for help, you know, to tell law enforcement, I don't want to be doing this. I fear for my life. Um, Is there any way out? Not, I mean, yes and no. I think brainwashing is so real in this industry. I mean, Stockholm syndrome, capture bonding, trauma bonding, those are real actual things that, right, psychologists Mm -hmm. know about. There's DSM-5s for, which are really hard to get. Mm -hmm. And so, I think there's recent research done that even shows that domestic human trafficking fits all 15 indicators of cult behavior. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about brainwashing and the science behind brainwashing and the neurology behind like replacing someone's ideologies with new sets of ideologies, reinforcing it through punishment for non-cooperation and rewarding for cooperation. Like, oh, you obeyed the rules. I'm going to give you the weekend off. Oh, you told on your wife-in-law when she didn't obey the rules, I'm going to take you to Disneyland this weekend, you and your kids. And so Mm -hmm. it's without you realizing you're actually beginning to be brainwashed, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel like you're 
we see people join cults. We wonder why they all drink the Kool-Aid or why didn't, you know? So we ask similar things of other groups. Why would someone commit suicide in terms of self-bombing other places? Like, why do people do that? Because religious cults and political groups and other types, they actually brainwash the members. And this is no different. Trafficking is absolutely no different. And so I didn't sometimes even think to ask like, hey, I'm, I need help. I'm in danger of my life. I thought, I'm keeping my mouth shut. You guys are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. That's what I always thought. Like, mm -hmm. nope, cops are the bad guys. You don't talk to cops, right? Yeah. And yeah. beaten to believe that was a form of my brainwashing. Mm -hmm. I detail one of those kind of prisoner of war style tactics that he would employ on victims in the book where, mm -hmm. you know, you'd be kept up for hours to just repeat over and over again, lawyer, 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 no matter what cops said to you. And so you don't think, I need help, I'm in trouble. You think, lawyer, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's weird. Mm -hmm. You just regurgitate the things that have been forced on you for years. Mm -hmm. Are law enforcement officers becoming more aware of this so they can spot some of these patterns? I know that's part of what, what you're trying to do through the Rebecca Bender Initiative. Yeah, our nonprofit has been training over 100,000 law enforcement officers and first responders in the last six years. And I think we're seeing a ton of progress with law enforcement, for sure. They're learning how to interview, not interrogate. They're learning to potentially not arrest victims for prostitution, but target more of their stings around who's driving that person to the facility. Thankfully, we worked Super Bowl in Minneapolis a couple years back, whenever it was in Minneapolis. And I can remember one of the stings, they booked a woman off an escort service to come to the, the undercover location. And they actually put people out, undercover officers out in the parking lot. And so the goal was actually to surround vehicles that were dropping mm -hmm. victims off. Mm -hmm. The goal was not to arrest the victims. The victims mm -hmm. they released into services. Yeah. They never arrested. And so we're seeing a lot more law enforcement groups uh, create new procedures. The problem is, is they're not actually legal policy yet. And so as soon as you have a great department that's been doing really well, each of them get promoted or they get a raise and they're off into new departments and you're starting back on square one without any policy in place that's requiring the new officers to adhere to this new form of thinking. And so it feels like every five years you're back to retraining the new group. And that's a change I still think we need to figure out, but I'm grateful for the progress and the awareness, but I, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, it's really a relatively new field in terms of talking through these issues. Um, human trafficking has been happening for probably forever in one form or another, but we really weren't talking about this. I think you would know better than I do, but in my memory, it's only been like 10 or 12 years uh, that this has even been a public conversation. Yeah, there's a couple people I know that they've been fighting in this field for about 20, but I don't think it's been about 10, 15 that it's been really more on the public radar. But when you see things like domestic violence or even mandated reporting of child abuse, those sort of laws became in place because of advocates, right? Mm -hmm, like right. every hospital didn't have some required child mandating reporting law until 2010 was the mm. last state to finally make that a policy. And so that's, you know, when we think about law enforcement has codes to call for domestic violence, right? Like we got a 1092 on blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. I don't know what all the codes are. Um, and we have domestic violence units. We have sex crimes units. Those are all sort of things that the human trafficking movement is trying to get in place in every state. 
We need codes to call. We need units that are in place with detectives that aren't going to get promoted and put out. And we need actual policy requirements that are mandated Mm. to help really shift the way each community sees this issue and can identify victims that are being exploited. Mm. When you were in the midst of this, uh, did you have any contact with your family? Did friends back home have any idea of what you're going through or did you just kind of fall off the map? Um, A little bit of all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think everyone felt like the relationships got less and less like, oh, we'd hear from her once in a while um, for friends. I'd have friends that would show up in Vegas to just to be there for their own vacation time and they'd reach out and I would end up making some excuse so I couldn't meet up with them. And I was always afraid I was going to see them while I was out. My family, I would talk to less and less. My mom says that our relationship, if it started as a rope, it ended as a very thin thread. Mm. And anytime she would push for a little bit more information, I would just shut down or hang up and then she wouldn't hear from me for quite some time. And that always made her nervous because then she didn't know where her granddaughter was. Mm-hmm. She said she called 911 several times throughout my trafficking saying something's wrong, mm-hmm. like something's wrong with my daughter. Um, this isn't her. This isn't normal. We think that her boyfriend's forcing her to be a prostitute. And um, every time the cops would say, if you don't have an address, ma'am, there's nothing we can do. She's mm-hmm. an adult. And she said, well, that's the problem is they won't give me an address. They'll only give me a P.O. box. And yeah. I don't think they ever thought about hiring a private investigator. Like it's just a lot for small, for any family, but mm-hmm. I think especially a real small town family, like human trafficking isn't even a deck in the cards. It's not mm-hmm. even something you're thinking about. They're just yeah. like, is Becky on drugs? Is mm-hmm. Becky a stripper? Like they just mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on with me. Yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe she knew more than she should have known. I mean, she guessed pretty right there. So yeah, uh, by the end, she started realizing I would come home with black eyes for mm -hmm. Christmas. Mm -hmm. My trafficker used to, he'd buy everybody a ticket to go home to visit their family for Christmas time. And then he would start a fight right before their flight date. And they would end up being severely beaten. And so they would end up canceling because they didn't want their family to see them like that. So it was intentional on his part, very calculating. Mm-hmm. I'd go anyway. I'd mm-hmm. show with black eyes. Mm-hmm. And so I can remember my grandpa trying to hand me $200 and saying, this is for you to run. Yeah, You have a domestic violence shelter number. And, yeah. and I would call domestic violence shelters and they'd talk through an escape plan and a safe word. And I didn't really know I was being trafficked. I, st- I fought domestic violence for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I just thought prostitution was what our family did, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But I thought I was in domestic. I still have a wife in law today that will not admit that we were trafficked, mm-hmm. that still says we were all just in domestic violence. But so you, she, she holds on to that. You've used this term wife in law, which people are like, what does she mean by that? What does that mean? It's another victim in the home that was trafficked with you. So you become like this mini family. When we talk about cult behavior, it's like this mini cult. There's multiple women and one man. So you have one control, high control group leader. Everyone's contributing funds to this one family pot. Um, so it's sim- right? It's exactly what cults do and compounds and things like that. Or communes. I might not be using the terms right. Sorry. Anyone's no. listening. They're like, we live on a compound and we're not a cult. <laughs> then you're not the one I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the wife-in-laws are the other women in your home. So it's very much like a polygamous family. Mm-hmm. I get more triggered watching wife sister wives than I do other than I do Taken because Taken's mm-hmm. so unrealistic and sister wives is much more how our life would have been. Mm-hmm. And are those documentaries that, what I'm not familiar with those two titles, are those shows that talk about trafficking or? No, Sister Wives is a show that talks about polygamy and the FDLS mm-hmm. and 
Taken is just the movie with Liam Neeson. I did see Taken, so I'm not not completely out of it. (laughs) Yeah, that one wouldn't trigger me because it's not realistic. But the documentary, it's not a documentary. I'm sorry, it's like a scripted TV drama. Mm -hmm. It's like a reality show on TV called Sister Mm -hmm. Wives. And that one feels much more triggering to Mm -hmm. watch, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how did you actually get out of this? How did you escape? Well, I finally was able to run. I mean, a lot of people say six years is a long time. Why didn't you just run? My answer is I did. That's why I'm mm-hmm. sitting here, as mm-hmm. I did run. Why didn't I run sooner? I had multiple attempted escapes. And I learned with each attempt what to do better next time. I learned where to hide rolled up jeans for next time. I learned that you can't buy a plane ticket post 9-11 with cash. So I got all the way to the airport and I couldn't, they wouldn't sell me a plane ticket. You had to have a credit card. Your trafficker doesn't leave you a credit card, mm-hmm. you know? So you start learning with every attempted escape what to do better next time. I have another friend of mine who's a survivor and she tells her story a lot. And what I love that she says is she kept thinking at the next red light, I'm going to jump out. She said, but all the lights were green and we were only less than a few blocks from the house. Mm -hmm. And I just love that because we all envision what we would have done from maybe a show we saw or a movie we saw and this like, you know, moment where the person gets this, shot of bravery and they jump out of moving vehicles or out of windows. And, and that's not how all of the cards align sometimes in real life, right? Like it looks really good because it's a movie, but that isn't how things always align in real life. And, and so I love the thought of none of my lights turned red, Mm -hmm. you know, they were all green and what do you do then? Mm -hmm. So I finally was able to grab my daughter after my trafficker took a flight to go see his mother He was telling his mom that he was going to prison for tax evasion. In 2006, the feds had raided our home, one of the homes in Dallas for organized prostitution, money laundering, bank fraud, racketeering, and tax evasion. So they came in with a RICO Act charge. I was in Vegas at the time with one of the other women. And within a few months, the U.S. Marshals had surrounded the house in Vegas and had a warrant for her arrest, the other victim's arrest. Hmm. Their thoughts were, now that we've been able to reconnect with them and talk to them, and I detail this a little bit in the book, is, you know, they weren't really trained on trafficking that much back then. And they thought, we're just going to take in the youngest girl and we're going to pressure her to talk. And we hoped because she was youngest that she would. That was their plan. That was their strategy. Now that they know us and they've got a lot more training, their strategy would be very different today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we've done some training together, actually, me and the other victim, her name's actually uh, Becca Charleston, and the federal agent and the U.S. prosecuting attorney, Agent Mark Parsons, and U.S. attorney Andrew Stover in the book, all of which have allowed me to use their name. We do trainings together now, and we've done trainings at Crimes Against Women where we talk about lessons that we've all learned from this case and Mm -hmm. what they would do different this time. And Mm -hmm. It's really cool to be able to be used by God through something really hard that he knew I'd be able to get through to look back and say, okay, how can I use this now to create a training that would help other people know what to do different for the next girl, Mm -hmm. for the next group of girls that are trapped? It's an honor to be able to use my story to help other people. Yeah. And uh, you're doing that very well with everything you're doing. But I know that that doesn't just happen... Like naturally, like, okay, I'm free. Okay, now I'm going to do good out of this. Right. It had to be a long journey of just recovery. And, um, you know, people, after hearing your story, 
they may even be thinking, how in the world can you live normal life? I mean, how did those memories impact you as you're um, parenting your kids and as you're just going through normal life? Oh, so much. I mean, I wish sometimes <laughs> that we got saved and it was like, bibbity bobbity boo. Mm -hmm. Now you're Cinderella and you've had amnesia. No memories <laughs> the rest of your life. Yeah. I wish that was reality, but it's not. And you mm -hmm. have, I had to get to a place about a year in that I thought, you know, I've got some issues. Mm -hmm. Like I have some real character that is not godly. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm not victim blaming by any means. I think that the character that I had created was not by choice, but by circumstance. No, I learned real quickly how to be deceitful. I had to put on a fake front of who I was in order to survive, right? Mm -hmm. I had to put on a fake front to get through the night, to be able to keep my cool, to respond quickly. And so to put on that front, that kind of deceit, what I would call deceit, you're putting on something that you're not. Yeah. I did that real easy walking into my new life. That was real easy to go on a job interview and pretend like I had mm -hmm. all these great job resume to put on there. And, and I put my traffickers legal business that we had been laundering money through. I put that as the general manager on my resume and went and got a job as a general manager wow. at a motorcycle shop. And That's amazing. The hard yeah. part is, is I really did run the legal business for my trafficker. Yeah. We were just also laundering money through it, right? So mm -hmm. I shouldn't say we. He mm -hmm. was laundering money. I'm not going to take his crime, his crime on my shoulders. But yeah, we don't get saved and get amnesia. And I think having to really identify and acknowledge that I had some real character issues that I needed to change was eye-opening. It, it really allowed the Holy Spirit to come in and heal parts of me instead of being in denial. Like, no, I'm fine. This is just me. Take me or leave me. This is just how I am. And I see people that do that. Mm -hmm. Even if they weren't trafficked victims, I see people like, well, this is just how I am. Take it or leave it. And you're yeah. like, you know, you don't actually have to be like that though. You mm -hmm. know, you can actually change. Mm -hmm. And the first part is admitting like, wow, that's pretty ugly. Wow, that's not very kind. Wow, I am really sharp-tongued. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow, I put my foot in my mouth. I have no self-control. I have no patience. And I think admitting that is sometimes really hard, but can be really freeing to allow God to come in and start developing new character in you and start to realize like, nope, I'll bite my tongue on that one. I don't need to be I'm not the police. I haven't been crowned Holy Spirit to come in and convict <laughs> everybody, right? Like, uh -huh. <laughs> I can just bite my tongue and walk away. And what we practice gets stronger. And so if I'm going to practice putting on a mask, it will get stronger. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to practice gossiping, it will get stronger. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to practice biting my tongue, that muscle will get really strong and I'll get really good fruit of self-control. Mm -hmm. And I think it's up to us to determine what we're going to pursue and what we're going to practice in our own lives. Mm -hmm. When did God enter your story? Oh, well, halfway through being trafficked, I got radically delivered from drug addictions and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then I went back to trafficking for another three years. And um, I didn't get my time with the Lord. And after that, I fled again. I mean, the whole story's crazy. So pick up the book so you don't mm -hmm. get it. Right? Uh -huh. <laughs> but I ran again. I called it my pretty woman year where I thought that I could just go be Julia Roberts with a Richard Gere and somehow it all come together and didn't work like that. But um <laughs> It was during that season in my life that I started reading my Bible again. I started waking up and getting into prayer first thing. And I started hearing the voice of God again immediately like I used to. And that was really shocking for me because I 
I think the church unintentionally, big C church had taught me that I had to clock in a certain number of hours going to church before I could hear the voice of God. Mm -hmm. And, um, as soon as I opened my Bible and I felt like I could hear him again and I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, it was like my father ran to meet me, like that prodigal daughter. And I just loved that it was like, this is my dad that wants a relationship with me. This isn't some boss or some cop or, you know, like my dad is longing for me to come to him again. And it was really healing in my heart with my relationship with the father um, being that prodigal who mm-hmm. ran after deliverance back to sin and back to the pigs and mm-hmm. to be able to, to hear his voice again immediately was like, wow, you don't actually have to clock in a certain number of hours in prayer for God to want a relationship with you. He wants one now, right where you're at. Yeah, And I loved that. Yeah, that's profound. I think a lot of Christianity can become legalism again, where we earn the right to fellowship with God or to hear from Him. And what a great reminder that He meets us right where we are when we call out to Him. Yep. You're a married woman, again, raising four daughters. And um, one thing that I know (laughs) as a psychologist is that there is something called triggers that are very real. And they usually show up in marriage and, and parenting. We get triggered by seeing our kids go through um, the same stages or ages that we were when things went wrong or Mm -hmm. just seeing behaviors or just experiencing things. In marriage, you can be triggered by intimacy, sexuality. It's like it brings back memories of pain. And we get questions like that often at our ministry, like how in the world do I work through that? How can I get past the shame of the abuse I suffered, the choices that I made, how can this be beautiful when my whole experience has been, it's been evil? Mm-hmm. You're walking that road. Uh, what advice would you give to a woman who's in the middle of that? I think the first thing that's really important is that all abuse is different, mm-hmm. right? If you experience childhood molestation, it's a very different complex compound trauma in your brain than mm-hmm. someone like me who as an adult was forced to be seductive. I think that's a very different abuse. And I think it's important to really identify what the root of that wound is, right? Is it betrayal? Is it boundaries being crossed that you're not comfortable with? Like really identifying the root and going after that in prayer and in therapy, EMDR, any modality of therapy that works for you, be willing to try them all out, equine, dance, art, whatever, Mm -hmm. like just Mm -hmm. try it out, try getting deeper levels of healing of prayer in you know, there's lots of different ministries. There's Sozo, Kairos, there's all different types of inner healing, prayer times, you know, things like that. And once you can really find the root of your specific abuse, go after it because you're not, nothing's going to change until if nothing changes, right? And so like really try to dig it up and figure out the lie that you started believing that moment that abuse came in. For me, it was really about if you perform, you're rewarded. And if you perform, you're desired. And that wasn't just from my trafficking, although it absolutely was exacerbated from that. But even as a party girl in high school, like I was involved in lots of stuff. And if I had sex with boys, then they liked me and I got to be invited back. And I'd be the girl that was always invited to the parties because I was fast. And it's embarrassing to admit that. Like when I read my memoir out loud during the audiobook, I actually called 
my best friend. And I'm like, I feel like I just sound like this fast young girl. Hmm. And she said, even if you were, does that give a trafficker a right to beat you and sell you? And I'm like, no, it doesn't. But I think I had to really find the vulnerabilities that made me even willing to use my body to get attention far before the trafficking. Mm -hmm. And then it got even worse. And then the abuse. And so it just like it became really layered. And, and so I had to, when I got married, I had to get a lot of therapy around, like, I felt like every time my husband wanted to be intimate, I had to put on the sexy performance, right? Like, well, lo, get, let me go grab the outfit and let me do the little dance. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to perform here. This isn't like a show you're putting on tonight, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just this wall of just doing what was familiar and not connecting. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't healthy for either of us. And it, and it just caused more um, disconnect than actual intimacy, real true intimacy. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you married a good man. He's so good. I t- take him for granted way too much. He's so mm-hmm. patient. And he would pray a lot when I'd, I would push and he would just walk away. And I'd say, what are you, you know, you going to do? And he's like, I'm just praying for you. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm praying that God convict you and you start repenting because you got some issues, girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he Wait, was right. Yes. Uh, and you're in the thick of it. You're in the thick of it with uh, your personal life and certainly in your professional life and ministry life of fighting a great evil. How would you describe the spiritual battle around what you're doing? It's always really intense. And I think, you know, our strength is, can be used for a weakness. I think in, in a lot of things, I'm sure many people can relate. I think that, you know, I'm very bold. I, I don't mind being authentic and vulnerable with my story and people and letting people in. And I tell you what I think real quick, like, no, I think we should do this. And, and that's just my personality. That's how God made me. But if I get stressed and I'm not learning to have self-care time and I'm triggered and I've heightened emotional responses from not eating, right? Just being really thoughtful around my health, uh, mental, physical, emotional health. Then I start, those strengths can be amplified, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm really short-tempered and I'm really quick to just like, no, that's not right. And and my team can tell, like, ooh, Rebecca's stressed. (laughs) 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 And I've, you know... I'm the first to be like, man, I'm so sorry. Like I am having a really, I think I'm just going to take the rest of the day and go for a walk. I need to get into prayer. I need some downtime. I've been going all this weekend, all nonstop. And I think trying to figure out what some of those check engine lights are in your own life are helpful to rein it in. But I think the enemy is so good to also just attack you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a real risk in going so public with your story and being so vulnerable and processing things publicly that you might think about different a year from now, or I might have gone through some therapy and had some more aha moments that I can re-explain something I even just explained just now. Like I have a totally different perspective in two years and people hold that against you. Mm -hmm. They will not allow any grace for your growth will not allow any grace for your process. And so I'd come on different, I'm coming out publicly with my story in hopes of helping. And there are things that are really held against me. I I get a lot of hate mail. I get a lot of people that just want prostitution to be legalized. And Mm -hmm. 
right? You're fighting evil. And so pray for me, pray for protection. If you're listening, please cover us right now. Just like protect the benders and their Mm -hmm. family. Um, But today I I am a Bible teacher and I love teaching the word of God. And so I'm just excited for the different women's conferences and events that we get to do that get to move outside of trafficking and be more than our stories. I mean, I love my story. It's always going to be my testimony, but we're so much more than one bad thing that happened to us years ago. And I want all women to know that their stories matter and that redemption is available for everyone. And God has so much for you. If And we can really go after the roots of our trauma and find ways to move into all of the promises that he has. I love what Rebecca shared earlier in our conversation about how when she opened her Bible, she began to hear God's voice immediately. You know, God pursues us. Even the fact that you're listening to this podcast right now is not by accident. I don't know what you might be walking through, but I know that our Father, our Healer, will meet you where you are, no matter how far away you may feel from Him, because He wants you to experience and know His love. We have more resources that can help you work through hard issues involving abuse, sexuality, and shame at AuthenticIntimacy.com. And if you've been inspired by our conversation today, please pick up a copy of In Pursuit of Love, One Woman's Journey from Trafficked to Triumphant. We'll link to that book on our podcast page. I'm Julie Slattery, and thanks for listening. I look forward to having coffee with you next time.